CD 10. It was a terrible thing to see guile on the face of Mr. Grote. The old man tapped the side of his nose. "'You're the man that got money out of a bunch of goods, sir,' he said, grinning happily. "'Yes,' said Moist desperately, "'but supposing I—I I just did that with a trick.' "'Damn good trick, sir,' the old man cackled. "'Damn good! A man who could trick money out of the gods "'would be capable of anything, I should think. "'Mr. Grote, there is no way a coach can get to Genua "'faster than a clack's message.' It's two thousand miles. Yes, I realise you got to say that, sir. Walls have ears, sir. Mum's the word. But we all had a little talk, and we reckoned you'd been very good to us, sir. You really believe in the post office, sir, so we thought it's time to put our money in our mouth, sir, said Grote. And now there was a touch of defiance. Moist gaped once or twice. You mean where your mouth is? You're the man who knows a trick or three, sir. The way you just went into the newspaper office and said, we'll race you. Reach a gilt walk right into your trap, sir. Glass into diamond, thought Moist. He sighed. All right, Mr Grote, thank you. Eight to one on, eh? We were lucky to get it, sir. They went up to ten to one, and then they closed the books. All they're accepting now is bets on how you'll win, sir. Moist perked up a little. Any good ideas, he asked. I've got a one dollar flutter on by dropping fire from the sky, sir. Eh, uh, you wouldn't like to give me in, perhaps? Please go and get on with your work, Mr Grote, said Moist severely. Yes, sir, of course, sir. Sorry I asked, sir, said Grote, and crabbed off. Moist put his head in his hands. I wonder if it's like this for mountain climbers, he thought. You climb bigger and bigger mountains, and you know that one day one of them is going to be just that bit too steep. But you go on doing it, because it's so good when you breathe the air up there, and you know you'll die falling. How could people be so stupid? They seemed to cling to ignorance because it smelled familiar. Reacher Gilt sighed. He had an office in the Tump Tower. He didn't like it much because the whole place shook to the movement of the semaphore, but it was necessary for the look of the thing. It did have an unrivalled view of the city, though, and the sight alone was worth what they'd paid for the trunk. It takes the best part of two months to get to Genoa by coach, he said, staring across the rooftops of the palace. He might be able to shave something off that, I suppose. The clacks takes a few hours. What is there about this that frightens you? So what's his game? said Greenham. The rest of the board sat around the table looking worried. I don't know, said Gilt. I don't care. But the gods are on his side, Reacher, said Nutmeg. Let's talk about that, shall we? said Gilt. Does that claim strike anyone else's odd? The gods are not generally known for no Phil's gifts, are they? Especially not ones you can bite. No. These days, they restrict themselves to things like grace, patience, fortitude, and inner strength. Things you can't see. Things that have no value. Gods tend to be interested in profits, not profits. <laughs> there were some blank looks from those fellow directors. I didn't quite get that one, old chap, said Stoley. Profess, I said. Not profits, said Gilt. He waved a hand. Don't worry yourselves. It'll look better written down. In short... Mr Litvig's gift from above was a big chest of coins, some of them in what looked remarkably like bank sacks, and all in modern denominations. You don't find this strange? Yes, but even the high priests say he... Litvig is a showman, snapped Gilt. Do you think the gods will carry his mail coach for him, do you? This is a stunt, do you understand? He got him on page one again, that's all. This is not hard to follow. He has no plan other than to fail heroically. No one expects him actually to win, do they? I heard that people are betting heavily on him. 
People enjoy the experience of being fooled if it promises a certain amount of entertainment, said Gilt. Do you know a good bookmaker? I shall have a little flatter. Five thousand dollars, perhaps. This got some nervous laughter, and he followed it up. Gentlemen, be sensible. No gods will come to the aid of our postmaster. No wizard either. They're not generous with magic, and we'll soon find if he uses any. No. He's looking for the publicity, that's all. Which is not to say, he winked, that we shouldn't. How shall I put it? Make certainty doubly sure. They perked up still more. This sounded like the kind of thing they wanted to hear. After all, accidents can happen in the mountains, said Greenham. I believe that is the case, said Gilt. However, I was referring to the Grand Trunk. Therefore, I have asked Mr Pony to outline our procedure. Mr Pony. The engineer shifted uneasily. He'd had a bad night. I want it recorded, sir, that I have urged a six-hour shutdown before the event, he said. Indeed, and the minutes will show that I have said it is quite impossible, said Gilt. Firstly, because it would be an unpardonable loss of revenue, and secondly, because sending no messages would send quite the wrong message. We'll shut down for an hour before the event, then, and clear down, said Mr Pony. Every tower will send a statement of readiness to the tump and then lock all doors and wait. No one will be allowed in or out. We'll configure the towers to run duplex, that is, he translated for management. We'll turn the down line into a second up line, so the message will get to Genua twice as fast. We won't have any other messages on the trunk while the uh, race is on. No overhead, nothing. And from now on, sir, from the moment I walk out of this room, we take no more messages from feeder towers, not even from the one in the palace, not even from the one in the university. He sniffed and added with some satisfaction, especially not them students. Someone's been having a go at us, sir. That seems a bit drastic, Mr Pony, said Greenham. I hope it is, sir. I think someone's found a way of sending messages that can damage a tower, sir. That's impossible. Mr Pony's hand slapped the table. How come you know so much, sir? Did you sit up half the night trying to get the bottom of it? Have you taken a differential drum apart with a tin opener? Did you spot how the swage armature can be made to jump off the elliptical bearing if you hit the letter K and then send it to a tower with an address higher than yours, but only if you hit the letter Q first and the drum spring is fully wound? Did you spot that the key levers wedge together and the spring forces the arm up and you're looking at a gearbox full of teeth? Well, I did. Are you talking about sabotage here? said Gilt. Call it what you like said Pony, drunk with nervousness. I went to the yard this morning and dug out the old drum we took out of Tower 14 last month. I'll swear the same thing happened there. But mostly, the breakdowns are in the upper tower, in the shutter boxes. That's where... So, our Mr Lipvig has been behind a campaign to sabotage us, Gilt mused. I never said that, said Pony. No name need be mentioned, said Gilt smoothly. It's just sloppy design, said Pony. I dare say one of the lads found it by accident and tried it again to see what happened. They're like that, the tower boys. Show them a bit of cunning machinery and they'll spend all day trying to make it fail. The old trunk's a lash-up, it really is. Why do we employ people like this? said Stowley, looking bewildered. Because they're the only people mad enough to spend their life up a tower, miles from anywhere, pressing keys, said Pony. They like it. But somebody in a tower must press the keys that do all these terrible things, said Stowley. Pony sighed. They never took an interest. It was just money. They didn't know how anything worked. And then suddenly they needed to know, and you had to use baby talk. The lads follow the signal, sir, as they say, he said. They watch the next tower and repeat the message as fast as they can. There's no time to think about it. Anything for their tower comes out on the differential drum. They just pound keys and kick pedals and pull levers as fast as they can. They take pride in it. 
They even do all kinds of tricks to speed things up. I don't want any talk about sabotage, not right now. Let's just get that message sent as fast as possible. The lads will enjoy that. The image is attractive, said Gilt. They're dark of night, they're waiting towers, and then, one by one, they come alive as a serpent of light speeds across the world softly and silently, carrying its... whatever. We must get some poet to write about it. He nodded at Mr Pony. We're in your hands, Mr Pony. You're the man with a plan. I don't have one, said Moist. No plan, said Miss Dearheart. Are you telling me that you... Keep it down, keep it down, Moist hissed. I don't want everyone to know. They were in the little cafe near the pin exchange, which, Moist had noticed, didn't seem to be doing much business today. He'd had to get out of the post office in case his head exploded. You challenged the Grand Trunk. You mean you just talked big and hoped something would turn up? said Miss Dearheart. It's always worked before. Where's the sense in promising to achieve the achievable? What kind of success would that be? said Moist. Haven't you ever heard of learning to walk before you run? It's a theory, yes. I just want to be absolutely clear, said Miss Dearheart. Tomorrow night, that's the day after today, you are going to send a coach. That's a thing on wheels, pulled by horses, which might reach 14 miles an hour on a good road, to race against the Grand Trunk. That's all those semaphore towers, which can send messages at hundreds of miles an hour, all the way to January. That's the town, which is a very long way away indeed. Yes. And you have no wonderful plan? No. And why are you telling me? Because, in this city, right now, you are the only person who would possibly believe I don't have a plan, said Moist. I told Mr Grote, and he just tapped the side of his nose, which is something you wouldn't want to watch, by the way, and said, Of course you haven't, sir. Not you. Ho, ho, ho. And you just hoped something would turn up? What made you think it would? It always has. The only way to get something to turn up when you need it is to need it to turn up. And I'm supposed to help you how? Your father built the trunk. Yes, but I didn't, said the woman. I've never been up the towers. I don't know any big secrets, except that it's always on the point of breaking down, and everyone knows that. People who can't afford to lose are betting money on me, and the more I tell them they shouldn't, the more they bet. Don't you think that's a bit silly of them, said Miss Dearheart sweetly. Moist drummed his fingers on the edge of the table. All right, he said. I can think of another good reason why you might help me. It's a little complicated, so I can only tell you if you promise to sit still and not make any sudden movements. Why? Do you believe I will? Yes, I think that in a few seconds you'll try to kill me. I'd like you to promise not to. She shrugged. This should be interesting. Promise, said Moist. All right. I hope it's going to be exciting. Miss Dearheart flicked some ash off a cigarette. Go on. Moist took a couple of calm breaths. This was it. The end. If you kept changing the way people saw the world, you ended up changing the way you saw yourself. I am the man who lost you that job at the bank. I forged those bills. Miss Dearheart's expression didn't change, apart from a certain narrowing of the eyes. Then she blew out a stream of smoke. I did promise, did I? she said. Yes, sorry. Did I have my fingers crossed? No, I was watching. Hmm. She stared reflectively at the glowing end of her cigarette. All right. You'd better tell me the rest of it. He told her the rest of it, all of it. She quite liked the bit where he was hanged and made him repeat it. 
Around them the city happened, between them the ash-tray filled up with ash. When he'd finished, she stared at him for some time, through the smoke. "'I don't understand the bit where you give all your stolen money to the post office. Why did you do that?' "'I'm a bit hazy on that myself. I mean, you're clearly a self-centred bastard, with the moral fibre of a... of a... rat?' Moist suggested. "'A rat, thank you. But suddenly you're the darling of the big religions, the saviour of the post office, official snook-cocker to the rich and powerful.' Heroic horseman, all-round wonderful human being, and, of course, you rescued a cat from a burning building. Two humans, too, but everyone knows the cat's the most important bit. Who are you trying to fool, Miss Lipvig? Me, I think. I've fallen into good ways. I keep thinking I can give it up any time I like, but I don't. But I know if I couldn't give it up any time I liked, I wouldn't go on doing it. Um, there is another reason, too. And that is, I'm not reach a guilt. That's sort of important. Some people might say there's not a lot of difference, but I can see it from where I stand, and it's there. It's like a golem not being a hammer. Please, how can I beat the grand trunk? Miss Dearheart stared through him until he felt very uncomfortable. Then she said in a faraway voice, How well do you know the post office, Mr Lipvig? The building, I mean. I saw most of it before it burned down, but you never went onto the roof. No, I couldn't find a way up. The upper floors were stuffed with letters when I... tried... Moist's voice trailed off. Miss Dearheart stubbed out her cigarette. Go up there tonight, Mr Lipvig. Get yourself a little bit closer to heaven, and then get down on your knees and pray. You know how to pray, don't you? You just put your hands together and hope. Moist got through the rest of the day somehow. There were postmastery things to do, Mr Spools to speak to, builders to shout at, the everlasting clearing up to oversee, and new staff to hire. In the case of the staff, though, it was more ratifying the decisions of Mr Grote and Miss Macalariat, but they seemed to know what they were doing. He just had to be there to make the occasional judgment, like, "'Do we embrace divertingly?' said Miss Macalariat, appearing in front of his desk. There was a pregnant pause. It gave birth to a lot of little pauses, each one more deeply embarrassing than its parent. "'Not as far as I know,' was the best Moist could manage. "'Why do you ask?' "'A young lady wants to know. She said that's what they do at the Grand Trunk.' "'Ah, I suspect she means embrace diversity,' said Moist, recalling Gilt's speech to the Times. "'But we don't do that here, because we don't know what it means.' We'll employ anyone who can read and write and reach a letterbox, Miss Macalariat. I'll hire vampires if they're a member of the League of Temperance, trolls if they wipe their feet, and if there are any werewolves out there, I'd love to hire postmen who can bite back. Anyone who can do the job, Miss Macalariat, our job is moving the mail. Morning, noon and night we deliver. Was there anything else? Now there was a glint in her eye. I don't have any difficulties with anyone who speaks up about what they are, Mr. Lipbig, but I must protest about dwarfs. Mr. Groats is hiring them. Fine workers, Miss Macalariat, keen on the written word, hard-working too, said Moist briskly. But they do not tell you what their, um, what they, uh, which, uh, if they're ladies or gentlemen dwarfs, Mr. Lipvig. Ah, this is going to be about the privies again, said Moist, his heart sinking. "'I feel I am responsible for the moral welfare of the young people in my charge,' said Miss Macalariat sternly. "'You are smiling, Postmaster, but I will not be fond with.' 
"'You're concerned as you credit, Miss McAlariat,' said Moist. "'Special attention will be paid to this in the design of the new building, "'and I will tell the architect that you are to be consulted at every stage.' "'Miss McAlariat's well-covered bosom inflated noticeably at the sudden acquisition of power. "'In the meantime, alas, we must make do with what the fire has left us. "'I do hope, as part of the management team, you will reassure people on this.' The fires of dreadful pride gleamed off Miss Macalariat's spectacles. Management? Of course, postmaster, she said. But mostly, Moist's job was just to be. Half of the building was a blackened shell. People were squeezed into what was left. Mail was even being stored on the stairs. And things seemed to go better when he was around. He didn't have to do anything, he just had to be there. He couldn't help thinking of the empty plinth where the god had been taken away. He was ready when dusk came. There were plenty of ladders around, and the golems had managed to shore up the floors, even up here. Soot covered everything, and some rooms opened onto blackness, but he climbed ever up. He struggled through what remained of the attics, and clambered through a hatch and onto the roof. There wasn't much of it, the descent of the rainwater tank had brought down a lot of burning roof with it, and barely a third remained over the great hall. But the fire had hardly touched one of the legs of the yew, and the roof there looked sound. There was one of the old postal pigeon lofts there, and someone had been living in it. That wasn't too surprising. Far more people wanted to live in Ankh-Morpork than there was Ankh-Morpork for them to live in. There was a whole sub-civilization at rooftop level— up here among the towers and ornamental domes and cupolas and chimneys and... Clax Towers. That's right, he'd seen the Clax Tower and someone up here just before his life had taken a turn for the strange. Why would a loft built for carrier pigeons have a semaphore tower? Surely the pigeons didn't use it. Three gargoyles had colonised this one. They liked Clax Towers anyway. Being up high was what being a gargoyle was all about and they'd fitted into the system easily. A creature that spent all its time watching and was bright enough to write down a message was a vital component. They didn't even want paying, and they never got bored. What could possibly bore a creature that was prepared to stare at the same thing for years at a time? Around the city, the Clax Towers were lighting up. Only the university, the palace, the guilds, and the seriously rich or very nervous ran their towers at night. But the big terminal tower on the tump blazed like a hogswatch tree. Patterns of yellow squares ran up and down the main tower, silent at this distance, winking their signals above the rising mists, outlining their constellations against the evening sky. The towers were more magical than magic, more bewitching than witchcraft. Moist stared. What was magic, after all, but something that happened at the snap of a finger? Where was the magic in that? It was mumbled words and weird drawings in old books, and in the wrong hands it was dangerous as hell— but not one half as dangerous as it could be in the right hands. The universe was full of the stuff. It made the stars stay up and the feet stay down. But what was happening now? This was magical. Ordinary men had dreamed it up and put it together, building towers on rafts in swamps and across the frozen spines of mountains. They'd cursed, and worse, used logarithms. They'd waded through rivers and dabbled in trigonometry. They hadn't dreamed, in the way people usually use the word, but they'd imagined a different world, and bent metal round it. And out of all the sweat and swearing and mathematics had come this thing, dropping words across the world as softly as starlight. 
The mist was filling the streets now, leaving the buildings like islands in surf. Pray, she'd said, and in a way the gods owed him a favour. Well, didn't they? They'd got a handsome offering and a lot of celestial cred for not, in fact, doing anything at all. Get down on your knees, she'd said. It hadn't been a joke. He knelt, pressed his hands together and said, I address this prayer to any god who... With a silence that was frightening, the clack's tower across the street lit up. The big squares glowed into life one after the other. For a moment, Moist saw the shape of the lamplighter in front of one of the shutters. As he disappeared into the dark, the tower started to flicker. It was close enough to illuminate the roof of the post office. There were three dark figures at the other end of the roof, watching Moist. Their shadows danced as the pattern of lights changed twice every second. They revealed the figures were human, or at least humanoid, and they were walking towards him. Gods. Now, gods could be humanoid, and they didn't like to be messed about. Moist cleared his throat. "'I'm certainly glad to see you,' he croaked. "'Are you moist?' said one of the figures. "'Look, I... I... "'She said you'd be kneeling down,' said another member of the celestial trio. "'Fancy a cup of tea?' Moist got up slowly. This was not godly behaviour. "'Who are you?' he said. Emboldened by the lack of thunderbolts, he added, "'And what are you doing on my building?' "'We pay rent,' said a figure, "'to Mr Grote. "'He never told me about you. "'Can't help you there.' said the shadow in the centre. Anyway, we've only come back to get the rest of our stuff. Sorry about your fire. It wasn't us. You being, said Moist, I'm Mad Owl, he's St Alex, and that's Adrian, who says he's not mad but can't prove it. Why do you rent the roof? The trio looked at one another. Pigeons, suggested Adrian. That's right, we're pigeon fanciers, said the shadowy figure of St Alex. But it's dark, said Moist. This information was considered. "'Bats,' said Madal. "'We're trying to breed homing bats.' "'I don't believe bats have that kind of homing instinct,' said Moist. "'Yeah, it's tragic, isn't it?' said Alex. "'I come up here at nights and see those empty little perches "'and it's all I can do not to cry,' said undecided Adrian. "'Moist looked up at the little tower. "'It was about five times the height of a man "'with the control levers on a polished panel near the bottom.' It looked professional and well-used and portable. "'I don't think you breed any kind of birds up here,' he said. "'Bats are mammals,' said St. Alex. Moist shook his head. "'Lurking on rooftops, your own clacks. You're the smoking gnu, aren't you?' "'Ah, oh, with a mind like that, I can see why you're Mr. Groat's boss,' said St. Alex. "'How about a cup of tea?' Mad Owl picked a pigeon feather out of his mug. The pigeon loft was full of the flat, choking smell of old guano. "'You have to like birds to like it up here,' he said, flicking the feather into St. Alex's beard. "'Good job you do, eh?' said Moist. "'I didn't say I did, did I? And we don't live up here. It's just that you've got a good rooftop.' It was cramped in the pigeon loft, from which pigeons had, in fact, been barred. But there's always one pigeon that can bite through wire netting, it watched them from the corner with mad little eyes, its genes remembering the time it had been a giant reptile that could have taken these sons of monkeys to the cleaners in one mouthful. Bits of dismantled mechanisms were everywhere. "'Miss Dearheart told you about me, did she?' said Moist. "'She said you weren't a complete ass," said undecided Adrian. "'Which is praise coming from her,' said St Alex. "'And she said you were so crooked you could walk through a corkscrew sideways.' said undecided Adrian. 
She was smiling when she said it, though. That's not necessarily a good thing, said Moist. How do you know her? We used to work with her brother, said Marrow, on the Mark II tower. Moist listened. It was a whole new world. Sane Alex and Mad Owl were old men in the Clax business. They'd been in it for almost four years. Then the consortium had taken over and they'd been fired from the Grand Trunk on the same day that undecided Adrian had been fired from the Alchemist's Guild chimney. In their case because they'd spoken their mind about the new management and in his case because he hadn't moved fast enough when the beaker started to bubble. They'd all ended up working on the second trunk. They'd even put money into it. So had others. It had all kinds of improvements. It would be cheaper to run. It was the bee's knees, mutts, nuts and various wonderful bits of half a dozen other creatures. And then John Deerhart, who always used a safety lanyard, landed in the cabbage field and that was the end of the second trunk. Since then, the trio had done the kind of jobs available to new square pegs in a world of old round holes, but every night, high above, the clacks flashed its messages. It was so close, so inviting, so accessible. Everyone knew in some vague, half-understood way that the Grand Trunk had been stolen in all but name. It belonged to the enemy. So they'd started an informal little company of their own, which used the Grand Trunk without the Grand Trunk's knowing. It was a little like stealing. It was exactly like stealing. It was, in fact, stealing. But there was no law against it, because no one knew the crime existed. So is it really stealing if what's stolen isn't missed? And is it stealing if you're stealing from thieves? Anyway, all property is theft, except mine. So now you're, what was it again? Crackers, Moist said. That's right, said Madow, because we can crack the system. That sounds a bit overdramatic when you're just doing it with lamps, doesn't it? Yeah, but flashers was already taken, said St. Alex. All right, but why smoking gnu, said Moist. That's cracker slang for a very fast message sent throughout the system, said St. Alex proudly. Moist pondered this. That makes sense, he said. If I was a team of three people who all had a first name beginning with the same letter, that's just the kind of name I'd choose. They'd found a way into the semaphore system, and it was like this. At night, all Clax Towers were invisible. Only the lights showed. Unless you had a good sense of direction, the only way you could identify who the message was coming from was by its code. Engineers knew lots of codes. Ooh, lots. You can send messages. Free, said Moist, and nobody notices. There were three smug smiles. It's easy, said Mad Owl, when you know how. How did you know that tower was going to break down? We broke it, said St. Alex. Broke the differential drum. They take hours to sort out because the operators have to... Moist missed the rest of the sentence. Innocent words swirled in it like debris caught in a flood, occasionally bobbing to the surface and waving desperately before being pulled under again. He caught the several times before it drowned, and even disconnect and gear chain, but the roaring, technical polysyllables rose and engulfed them all. And that takes at least half a day, St. Alex finished. Moist looked helplessly at the other two. And... That means what exactly, he said. If you send the right kind of message, you can bust the machinery, said Mad Owl. The whole trunk. In theory, said Mad Owl, because an execute and terminate code. Moist relaxed as the tide came back in. He wasn't interested in machinery. He thought of a spanner as something which had another person holding it. 
It was best just to smile and wait. That was the thing about artificers. They loved explaining. You just had to wait until they reached your level of understanding, even if it meant that they had to lie down. Can't do that any more in any case, because we've heard they're changing the... Moist stared at the pigeon for a while until silence came back. Ah, Mad Owl had finished, and by the looks of things it hadn't been on a high note. You can't do it then, said Moist, his heart sinking. Not now. Old Mr Pony might be a bit of an old woman, but he sits and niggles at problems. He's been changing all the codes all day. We've heard from one of our mates that every signaller will have to have a personal code now. They've been very careful. I know Miss Adora Bell thought we could help you, but that bastard Gill has locked things up tight. He's worried you're going to win, <laughs> said Moist. We'll come up with some other way in a week or two, said undecided Adrian. Can't you put it off till then? No, I don't think so. Sorry, said undecided Adrian. He was playing idly with a small glass tube full of red light. When he turned it over, it filled with yellow light. What's that? Moist asked. A prototype, said undecided Adrian. It could have made the trunk almost three times faster at night. It uses perpendicular molecules, but the trunk's just not open to new ideas. Probably because they explode when dropped, said St. Alex. Not always. I think I could do with some fresh air, said Moist. They stepped out into the night. In the middle distance, the terminal tower still winked, and towers were alight here and there in other parts of the city. What's that one? he said, like a man pointing to a constellation. Thieves' Guild said undecided Adrian. General signals for the members. I can't read them. And that one? Isn't that the first tower on the way to Solat? No, it's the watch station on the Hubwoods Gate. General signals to Pseudopolis Yard. It looks a long way off. They use smaller shutter boxes, that's all. You can't see Tower 2 from here. The university's in the way. Moist stared, hypnotised at the lights. I wondered why that old stone tower on the way to Solat wasn't used when the trunk was built. It's in the right place. The old wizard tower. Robert Deerhart used it for his experiments, but it's a bit too far, and the walls aren't safe, and if you stay in there for more than a day at a time, you go mad. It's all the old spells that got into the stones. There was silence, and then they heard Moist say, in a slightly strangled voice, If you could get onto the Grand Trunk tomorrow, is there anything you could do to slow it down? Yeah, but we can't, said undecided Adrian. Yes, but if you could. Well... "'There's something we've been thinking about,' said Madow. "'It's very crude.' "'Will it knock out a tower?' said Moist. "'Should we be telling him about this?' said St. Alex. "'Have you ever met anyone else that Killer had a good word for?' said Madow. "'In theory it could knock out every tower, Mr. Lipvig.' "'Are you insane as well as mad?' said St. Alex. "'He's government.' "'Every tower on the trunk,' said Moist. "'Yep, in one go,' said Madow. "'It's pretty crude.' "'Really, every tower?' said Moist again. Maybe not every tower, if they catch on, Madal admitted, as if less than wholesale destruction was something to be mildly ashamed of, but plenty. Even if they cheat and carry it to the next tower on horseback, we call it the woodpecker. The woodpecker? No, nah, no, nah, not like that. You need sort of more of a pause for effect, like the woodpecker. The woodpecker, said Moist more slowly. You've got it, but we can't get it onto the trunk. They're onto us. "'Supposing I could get it onto the trunk,' said Moist, staring at the lights. The towers themselves were quite invisible now. "'You? What do you know about claxed codes?' said undecided Adrian. "'I treasure my ignorance,' said Moist, "'but I know about people. You think about being cunning with codes. I just think about what people see.' 
They listened. They argued. They resorted to mathematics, while words sailed through the night above them. And sane Alex said, All right, all right, technically it could work, but the trunk people would have to be stupid to let it happen. But they'll be thinking about codes, said Moist, and I'm good at making people stupid. It's my job. I thought your job was postmaster, said undecided Adrian. Oh, yes, then it's my vocation. The smoking canoe looked at one another. It's a totally mad idea, said Mad Owl, grinning. I'm glad you like it, said Moist. There are times when you just have to miss a night's sleep. But Hank Moorpork never slept. The city never did more than doze, and would wake up around 3am for a glass of water. You could buy anything in the middle of the night. Timber? No problem. Moist wondered whether there were vampire carpenters quietly making vampire chairs. Canvas? There was bound to be someone in the city who'd wake up in the wee small hours for a wee and think, What I could really do with right now is 1,000 square yards of medium-grade canvas. And down by the docks, there were chandlers open to deal with Rush. There was a steady drizzle when they left for the tower. Moist drove the cart, with the others sitting on the load behind him and bickering over trigonometry. Moist tried not to listen. He got lost when maths started to get silly. Killing the Grand Trunk. Mm. Oh, the towers would be left standing, but it would take months to repair them all. It would bring the company down. No one would get hurt, the canoe said. They meant the men in the towers. The trunk had become a monster, eating people. Bringing it down was a beguiling idea. The canoe were full of ideas for what could replace it. Faster, cheaper, easier, streamlined, using imps specially bred for the job. But something irked Moist. Guilt had been right, damn him. If you wanted to get a message 500 miles very, very fast, the trunk was the way to do it. If you wanted to wrap it in a ribbon, you needed the post office. He liked the canoe. They thought in a refreshingly different way. Whatever curse hung around the stones of the old tower surely couldn't affect minds like theirs, because they were inoculated against madness by being a little bit crazy all the time. The Klax signalers, all along the trunk, were a different kind of people. They didn't just do their job, they lived it. But Moist kept thinking of all the bad things that could happen without the semaphore. Oh, they used to happen before the semaphore, of course, but that wasn't the same thing at all. He left them sawing and hammering in the stone tower and headed back to the city, deep in thought. Chapter 13. The Edge of the Envelope In which we learn the theory of Bay's space. Devious collarbone. The grand trunk burns. So sharp you'll cut yourself. Finding Miss Deerhart. A theory of disguise. Igor moves on. Let this moment never end. A brush with the trunk. The big sail unfurls. The message is received. Mustrum Ridcully, Arch-Chancellor of Unseen University, levelled his cue and took careful aim. The white ball hit a red ball which rolled gently into a pocket. This was harder than it looked because more than half of the snooker table served as the Arch-Chancellor's filing system. Ridcully practised the first available surface method of filing, and indeed, to get to the hole, a ball had to pass through several piles of paperwork, a tankard, a skull with a dribbly candle in it, and a lot of pipe ash. It did so. "'Well done, Mr Stibbons,' said Ridcully. Uh, I, "'I call it a Bayes' space,' said Ponder Stibbons proudly. 
Every organisation needs at least one person who knows what's going on and why it's happening and who's doing it. And at UU, this role was filled by Stibbons, who often wished it wasn't. Right now, he was present in his position as head of inadvisably applied magic, and his long-term purpose was to see that his department's budget went through on the nod. To this end, therefore, a bundle of thick pipes led from under the heavy old billiard table, out through a hole in the wall and across the lawn into the high-energy magic building, where, he sighed, this little trick was taking up 40% of the room time of Hex, the university's thinking engine. "'Good name!' said Ridcully, lining up another shot. "'As in phase space,' said Ponder, hopefully. "'When a ball is just about to uh, encounter an obstacle, that is not another ball, you see. Um, Hex moves it into a theoretically uh, parallel dimension where there is unoccupied flat surface and maintains speed and, and drag until it can be brought back into this one. It really is a most difficult and intricate piece of unreal-time spellcasting.' "'Yes, yes, very good.' said Ridcully. "'Was there something else, Mr Stebbins?' Ponder looked at his clipboard. Uh, 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 "'There's a polite letter from, from Lord Latinari asking, on behalf of the city, whether the university might consider including in its intake, oh, um, 25% of less able students, sir?' Ridcully potted the black through a heap of university directives. "'Can't have a bunch of grocers and butchers telling a university how to run itself, Stebbins?' he said firmly, lining up on a red. "'Thank them for their interest, and tell them we'll continue to take 100% of complete nutter dullards as usual. "'Take them in dull, turn them out sparkling. That's always been the UU way. Anything else?' Uh, "'Just this message for the uh, big race tonight, Arch-Chancellor.' "'Oh, yes, that thing. What shall I do, Mr Stibbons? I hear there's heavy betting on the post office.' Uh, "'Yes, Arch-Chancellor. Uh, people say the gods are on the side of Mr Lipvig.' "'Are they betting?' said Ridcully watching with satisfaction as the ball rematerialised on the other side of a neglected ham sandwich. I, I don't think so, sir. He can't possibly win. Was he the fellow who rescued a cat? Uh, that was him, sir, yes, said Ponder. Good chap. What do we think of the Grand Trunk? Bunch of bean crushers, I heard. Been killing people on those towers of theirs. Man in the pub told me he'd heard the ghosts of dead signallers haunt the trunk. I'll try for the pink. Uh, yes, I've heard that, sir. I think it's an urban myth, said Ponder. They travel from one end of the trunk to the other, he said. Not a bad way to spend eternity, mark you. There's some splendid scenery up in the mountains. The Arch-Chancellor paused and his big face screwed up in thought. Harrowspex's big directory of varying dimensions, he said at last. Uh, pardon, Arch-Chancellor? That's the message, said Ridcully. No one said it had to be a letter, eh? He waved a hand over the tip of the queue, which grew a powdering of fresh chalk. Give them a copy of the new edition. Send them to our man in Genua. What's his name? Thingamy. Got a funny name. Show him the old Alma Pater is thinking of him. Uh, that's Devious Collarbone, sir. He's out studying oyster communications in a low-intensity magical field for his bee thou. Good gods, can they communicate? said Ridcully. Apparently, Arch-Chancellor, although thus far they're refusing to talk to him. Why do we send him all the way out there? A Devious H. Collarbone, Arch-Chancellor, Ponder prompted. Remember? With terrible halitosis? Oh, you mean dragon breath collarbone, said Ridcully as realisation dawned. The one who could blow a hole in a silver plate? Yes, Arch-Chancellor, said Ponder patiently. Mustrum Ridcully always liked to triangulate in on new information from several positions. You said that out in the swamps uh, no one would notice. If you remember, we allowed him to take a small omniscope. Did we? Far thinking of us? Call him up right now and tell him what's going on, will you? 
Uh, yes, Arch-Chancellor. In fact, I'll leave it a few hours, because it's still night-time in Genoa. That's only their opinion, said Ridcully, citing again. Do it now, man. Fire from the sky. Everyone knew that the top half of the towers rocked as the messages flew along the trunk. One day, someone was going to do something about it, and all old signallers knew that if the connecting rod operating the shutters on the down line was pushed up to open them on the same blink as the connecting rod on the up line was pulled down to close the shutters on the other side of the tower, the tower lurched. It was being pushed from one side and pulled from the other, which would have roughly the same effect as a column of marching soldiers could have on an old bridge. That wasn't too much of a problem unless it occurred again and again so that the rocking built up to a dangerous level. But how often would that happen? Every time the woodpecker arrived at your tower, that was how often. And it was like an illness that could only attack the weak and sick. It wouldn't have attacked the old trunk, because the old trunk was too full of tower captains who'd shut down instantly and stripped the offending message out of the drum, secure in the knowledge that their actions would be judged by superiors who knew how a tower worked and would have done the same thing themselves. It would work against the new trunk, because there weren't enough of those captains now. You did what you were told, or you didn't get paid, and if things went wrong, it wasn't your problem. It was the fault of whatever idiot had accepted this message for sending in the first place. No one cared about you, and everyone at headquarters was an idiot. It wasn't your fault. No one listened to you. Headquarters had even started an employee-of-the-month scheme to show how much they cared. That was how much they didn't care. And today, you'd been told to shift code as fast as possible, and you didn't want to be the one accused of slowing the system down, so you watched the next tower in line until your eyes watered and you hit keys like a man tap-dancing on hot rocks. One after another, the towers failed. Some burned when the shutter boxes broke free and smashed onto the cabin roofs, spilling blazing oil. There was no hope of fighting fire in a wooden box sixty feet up in the air. You slid down the suicide line and legged it to a safe distance to watch the show. Fourteen towers were burning before someone took their hands off the keys. And then what? You'd been given orders. There were to be no, repeat, no other messages on the trunk while this message was being sent. What did you do next? Moist awoke, the grand trunk burning in his head. The smoking gnu wanted to break it down and pick up the pieces, and he could see why. But it wouldn't work. Somewhere on the line there was going to be one inconvenient engineer who'd risk his job to send a message ahead, saying, It's a killer, shift it slowly. And that would be that. Oh, it might take a day or two to get the thing to Genua, but they had weeks to work with. And someone else, too, would be smart enough to compare the message with what had been sent by the first tower. Guilt would wriggle out of it. No, he'd storm out of it. The message had been tampered with, he'd say, and he'd be right. There had to be another solution. The GNU were onto something, though. Changing the message was the answer, if only he could do it in the right way. Moist opened his eyes. He was at his desk, and someone had put a pillow under his head. When was the last time he'd slept in a decent bed? Oh, yes, the night Mr. Pump had caught him. He'd spent a couple of hours in a rented bed that had a mattress which didn't actually move and wasn't full of rocks. Bliss. His immediate past life scampered before his eyes. He groaned. Good morning, Mr. Lipvig, said Mr. Pump from the corner. Your razor is sharp, the kettle is hot, and I'm sure a cup of tea is on the way. What time is it? Noon, Mr. Lipvig. You did not get in until dawn.' 
the golem added reproachfully. Moist groaned again. Six hours to the race, and then so many pigeons would come home to roost, it'd be like an eclipse. There is much excitement, said the golem as Moist shaved. It has been agreed that the starting line will be in Sator Square. Moist stared at his reflection, barely listening. He always raised the stakes automatically, never promised to do the possible. Anyone could do the possible. You should promise to do the impossible, because sometimes the impossible was possible if you could find the right way, and at least you could often extend the limits of the possible. And if you failed, well, it had been impossible. But he'd gone too far this time. Oh, it'd be no great shame to admit that a coach and horses couldn't travel at a thousand miles an hour, but guilt would strut about it and the post office would remain just a little old-fashioned thing behind the times, small, unable to compete. Guilt would find some way to hold on to the grand trunk, cutting even more corners, killing people out of greed. "'Are you all right, Mr. Lipvig?' said the golem behind him. Moist stared into his own eyes, and what flickered in the depths. "'Oh, boy!' "'You have cut yourself, Mr. Lipvig,' said Mr. Pump. "'Mr. Lipvig?' "'Shame I missed my throat,' Moist thought. "'But that was a secondary thought, "'edging past the big dark one now unfolding in the mirror. "'Look into the abyss, and you'll see something growing, "'reaching towards the light.' "'It whispered, "'Do this. "'This will work. Trust me.' "'Oh, boy, it's a plan that will work,' Moist thought.' It's simple and deadly like a razor, but it'd need an unprincipled man to even think about it. No problem there, then. I'll kill you, Mr. Gilt. I'll kill you in our special way, the way of the weasel and cheat and liar. I'll take away everything but your life. I'll take away your money, your reputation and your friends. I'll spin words around you until you're cocooned in them. I'll leave you nothing, not even hope. Be carefully finished shaving, and wiped the remnant of the foam off his chin. There was not, in truth, that much blood. "'I think I could do with a hearty breakfast, Mr. Pump,' he said. "'And then I have a few things to do. In the meantime, can you please find me a broomstick, a proper birch besom, and then paint some stars on the handle?' The makeshift counters were crowded when Moist went down, but the bustle stopped when he entered the hall. Then a cheer went up. He nodded and waved cheerfully, and was immediately surrounded by people waving envelopes. He did his best to sign them all. "'Got a lot of extra mail for genuine, sir,' Mr Grote exulted, pushing his way through the crowd. "'Never seen a day like it! Never!' "'Jolly good. Well done,' Moist murmured. "'And the mail for the gods has gone right up, too,' Grote continued. "'Pleased to hear it, Mr Grote,' said Moist. Uh, "'We got a lot of the first stole out stamps, sir,' said Stanley, waving a couple of sheets above his head. "'The early sheets are covered in floors, sir.' "'I'm very happy for you,' said Moist, "'but I've got to go and prepare a few things.' "'Aha, yes!' said Mr. Grote, winking. "'A few things, eh? Just as you say, sir. Stand aside, please. Postmaster coming through.' Grote more or less pushed customers out of the way, as Moist, trying to avoid the people who wanted him to kiss babies or were trying to grab a scrap of his suit for luck, made it out into the fresh air. Then he kept the back streets and found a place that did a very reasonable double-sauce egg bacon and fried slice in the hope that food could replace sleep. It was all getting out of hand. People were putting out bunting and setting up stalls in Sator Square. The huge floating crowd that was the street population of Ankh-Morpork ebbed and flowed around the city, but tonight it would contract to form a mob in the square and could be sold things. Finally, he plucked up his courage and headed for the Golem Trust. It was closed. 
A bit more graffiti had been added to the strata that now covered the boarded-up window. It was just above knee level and said in crayon, Golems are made of poo. It was good to see the fine old traditions of idiot bigotry being handed down in a no-good-at-all kind of way. Dolly sisters, he thought wildly, staying with an aunt. Did she ever mention the aunt's name? He ran in that direction. Dolly sisters had once been a village before the sprawl had rolled over it. Its residents still considered themselves apart from the rest of the city with their own customs, dog-turd Monday, up-needles all, and almost their own language. Moist didn't know it at all. He pushed his way through the narrow lanes, looking around desperately for, what, a column of smoke? Actually, that wasn't a bad idea. He reached the house eight minutes later and hammered on the door to his relief. She opened it and stared at him. She said, how? He said, tobacconists. Not many women round here have a hundred-a-day habit. Well, what do you want, Mr. Clever? If you help me, I can take guilt for everything he's got, said Moist. Help me, please. On my honour as a totally untrustworthy man. That at least got a brief smile, to be replaced almost immediately by the default expression of deep suspicion. Then some inner struggle resolved itself. You'd better come into the parlour, she said, opening the door all the way. That room was small, dark, and crowded with respectability. Moist sat on the edge of a chair, trying not to disturb anything, while he strained to hear women's voices along the hallway. Then Miss Dearheart slipped in and shut the door behind her. "'I hope this is all right with your family,' said Moist. "'I I told them we were courting,' said Miss Dearheart. "'That's what parlours are for. "'The tears of joy and hope in my mother's eyes were a sight to see. "'Now, what do you want?' "'Tell me about your father,' said Moist. "'I've got to know how the grand trunk was taken over. "'Have you still got any paperwork?' "'It won't do any good. "'A lawyer looked at it and said it would be very hard to make a case. "'I intend to appeal to a higher court,' said Moist. "'I mean... "'We can't prove a lot of things. "'Not actually prove,' Miss Dearheart protested. "'I don't have to,' said Moist. "'The lawyer said it would take months and months of work to,' "'she went on, determined to find a snag. "'I'll make someone else pay for it,' said Moist. "'Have you got books, ledgers, anything like that?' "'What are you intending to do?' Miss Dearheart demanded. "'It's better if you don't know. "'It really is. "'I know what I'm doing, Spike, but you shouldn't.' "'Well,' "'There's a big box of papers,' said Miss Dearheart uncertainly. "'I suppose I could just sort of leave it in here while I'm tidying up. "'Good. But can I trust you on this? "'My gods, no. "'Your father trusted guilt and look what happened. "'I wouldn't trust me if I was you, but I would if I was me. "'The funny thing is, Mr. Lepvig, "'that I find myself trusting you all the more "'when you tell me how untrustworthy you are,' said Miss Dearheart. "'Moist sighed. "'Yes, I know, Spike.' "'Wretched, isn't it? It's a people thing. Could you fetch the box, please?' She did so with a puzzled frown. It took all afternoon, and even then Moist wasn't sure, but he'd filled a small notebook with scribbles. It was like looking for piranhas in a river choked with weeds. There were a lot of bones on the bottom, but although sometimes you thought you'd glimpsed a flash of silver, you could never be sure you'd seen a fish. The only way to be certain was to jump in. By half-past four, Sator Square was packed. The wonderful thing about the golden suit and the hat with wings was that if Moist took them off, he wasn't him any more. He was just a nondescript person with unmemorable clothes and a face you might vaguely think you'd seen before. He wandered through the crowd heading towards the post office. No one gave him a second glance. Most didn't bother with a first glance. In a way, he'd never realised until now. 
He was alone. He'd always been alone. It was the only way to be safe. The trouble was he missed the golden suit. Everything was an act, really, but the man in the golden suit was a good act. He didn't want to be a person you forgot, someone who was one step above a shadow. Underneath the winged hat he could do miracles, or, at least, make it appear that miracles had been done, which is nearly as good. He'd have to do one in an hour or two, that was certain. Oh, well. He went round the back of the post office and was about to slip inside when the figure in the shadow said, Pissed. I suspect you mean psst, said Moist. Sane Alex stepped out of the shadows. He was wearing his old grand trunk donkey jacket and a huge helmet with horns on. We're running slow with a canvas, he began. Why the helmet, said Moist. It's a disguise, said Alex. A big horned helmet? Yeah, it makes me so noticeable that no one will suspect I'm trying not to be noticed, so they won't bother to notice me. Only a very intelligent man would think of something like that, said Moist carefully. What's happening? We need more time, said Alex. What? The race starts at six. It won't be dark enough. We won't be able to get the sail up until half past at least. We'll be spotted if we poke our heads over the parapet before then. Oh, come on! The other towers are far too far away. People on the road aren't, said Alex. Blast! Moist had forgotten about the road. All it would take later on was someone saying they'd seen people on the old wizarding tower. Listen, we've got it all ready to raise, said Alex, watching his face. We can work fast when we're up there. We just need half an hour of darkness, maybe a few minutes more. Moist bit his lip. OK, I can do that, I think. Now, get back there and help them. But don't start until I get there, understand? Trust me. I'm saying that a lot, he thought after the man had hurried away. I just hope they will. He went up to his office. The golden suit was on its hanger. He put it on. There was work to do. It was dull, but it had to be done. So he did it. At half past, the floorboards creaked as Mr Pump walked into the room, dragging a broomstick behind him. "'Soon it will be time for the race, Mr. Lipvig,' he said. "'I must finish a few things,' said Moist. "'There's letters here from builders and architects. "'Oh, and someone wants me to cure their warts. "'I really have to deal with the paperwork, Mr. Pump.' "'In the privacy of Reacher Gilt's kitchen, Igor very carefully wrote a note. "'There were niceties to be observed, after all. "'You didn't just leg it like a thief in the night. "'You tied it up, made sure the larder was stocked, "'washed the dishes, and took exactly what you were owed from the petty cash-box.' Shame, really. It had been a pretty good job. Gilt hadn't expected him to do much, and Igor had enjoyed terrorising the other servants. Most of them, anyway. "'It's so sad you're going, Mr Igor,' said Mrs Glowbury, the cook. She dabbed at her eyes with a handkerchief. "'You've been a real breath of fresh air.' "'Can't be helped, Mrs Glowbury,' said Igor. "'I shall miss your steak and kidney pie, no mistake.' It doth my heart good to see a woman who can really make something out of leftovers.' "'I've knitted you this, Mr. Igor,' said the cook, hesitantly proffering a small, soft package. Igor opened it with care and unfolded a red and white striped balaclava. "'I thought it would help keep your bolt warm,' said Mrs. Glowbury, blushing. Igor agonised for a moment. He liked and respected the cook. He'd never seen a woman handle sharp knives so skilfully. Sometimes you had to forget the code of the Igors. "'Mrs. Glowbury, you did say you had a sister in Quirm,' he said. "'That's right, Mr. Igor.' "'Now would be a very good time for you to go and visit her,' said Igor firmly. "'Do not ask me why. "'Good-bye, dear Mrs. Glowbury. "'I shall remember your liver with fondness.' 
Now it was ten minutes to six. If you leave now, Mr. Lipvig, you will be just in time for the race, the golem rumbled from the corner. This is work of civic importance, Mr. Pump, said Moist severely, reading another letter. I'm showing rectitude and attention to duty. Yes, Mr. Lipvig. He let it go on until ten minutes past the hour, because it would take five minutes to get to the square at a nonchalant saunter. With the golem lumbering beside him in something approaching the antithesis of both nonchalance and sauntering, he left the post office behind. The crowd in the square parted at his approach, and there were cheers and some laughter when people saw the broomstick over his shoulder. It had stars painted on it, therefore it must be a magic broomstick. Of such beliefs are fortunes made. Find the lady, find the lady. There was a science to it, in a way. Of course, it helped if you found out how to hold three cards in a loose stack. That was really the key. Moist had learned to be good at that. But he had found mere mechanical tricks a bit dull, a bit beneath him. There were other ways, ways to mislead, to distract, to anger. Anger was always good. Angry people made mistakes. There was a space in the centre of the square, round the stagecoach on which Leadpipe Jim sat proudly. The horses gleamed, the coachwork sparkled in the torchlight but the group standing around the coach sparkled rather less. There were a couple of people from the trunk, several wizards, and, of course, Otto Schriek, the iconographer. They turned and welcomed Moist with expressions ranging from relief to deep suspicion. "'We were considering disqualification, Mr Lipvig,' said Ridcully, looking severe. Moist handed the broom to Mr Pump. "'I do apologise, Arch-Chancellor,' he said. "'I was checking some stamp designs and completely lost track of time. "'Oh, good evening, Professor Pelk.' The Professor of Morbid Bibliomancy gave him a big grin and held up a jar. "'And Professor Goitre,' he said. "'The old chap thought he'd like to see what all the fuss is about.' "'And this is Mr Pony of the Grand Trunk,' said Ridcully. Moist shook hands with the engineer. "'Mr Gilt's not with you,' he said, winking. "'He's uh, watching from this coach,' said the engineer, looking nervously at Moist. "'Well, since you're both here, Mr Stibbons will hand you each a copy of the message,' said the Arch-Chancellor. "'Mr Stibbons!' Two packages were handed over. Moist undid his and burst out laughing. "'But it's a book,' said Mr Pony. "'It'll take all night to code and his diagrams.' "'Okay, let's begin,' thought Moist, and moved like a cobra. He snatched the book from the startled pony, thumbed through it quickly, grabbed a handful of pages and ripped them out to a gasp from the crowd. "'There you are, sir,' he said, handing the pages back. "'There is your message, pages 79 to 128.' We'll deliver the rest of the book, and the recipient can put your pages in later if they arrive. He was aware of Professor Pelk glaring at him, and added, And I'm sure it can be repaired very neatly. It was a stupid gesture, but it was big and loud and funny and cruel, and if Moist didn't know how to get the attention of a crowd, he didn't know anything. Mr Pony backed away, clutching the stricken chapter. I didn't mean, he tried, but Moist interrupted with, After all, we've got a big coach for such a small book. It, 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 it's just that pages take time to code, Mr Pony protested. He wasn't used to this sort of thing. Machinery didn't answer back. Moist allowed a look of genuine concern to cross his face. Yes, that does seem unfair, he said. He turned to Ponder Stibbons. Don't you think that's unfair, Mr Stibbons? The wizard looked puzzled. Uh, but uh, once they've coded it, it'll only take them a couple of hours to get it genuine, he said. Nevertheless, I must insist, said Moist. We don't want an unfair advantage. "'Stand down, Jim,' he called to the coachman. "'We're going to give the clacks a head start.' He turned to Ponder and Mr Pony with an expression of innocent helpfulness. "'Would an hour be all right, gentlemen?' 
The crowd exploded. Gods, I'm good at this, Moist thought. I want this moment to go on forever. Mr Lipvig, a voice called out. Moist scanned the faces and spotted the caller. Ah, Miss Sacharissa, pencil at the ready? Are you seriously telling us you'll wait while the Grand Trunk prepares their message? She said. She was laughing. Indeed, said Moist, grasping the lapels of his gleaming jacket. We in the post office are fair-minded people. May I take this opportunity to tell you about our new green cabbage stamp, by the way? Surely you're going too far, Mr Lipvig. All the way to Genoa, dear lady. Did I mention the gum is cabbage flavoured? Moist couldn't have stopped himself now for hard money. This was where his soul lived, dancing on an avalanche, making the world up as he went along, reaching into people's ears and changing their minds. For this he offered glass as diamonds, leapt to find the lady cards fly under his fingers, stood smiling in front of clerks examining fake bills. This was the feeling he craved, the raw, naked excitement of pushing the envelope. Reacher Gilt was moving through the crowd like a shark among minnows. He gave Moist a carefully neutral look and turned to Mr Pony. "'Is there a problem, gentlemen?' he said. "'It's getting late.' In a silence punctuated by chuckles from the crowd, Pony tried to explain, insofar as he now had any grip of what was going on. "'I see,' said Gilt. "'You are pleased to make fun of us, Mr Litvig. "'Then allow me to say that we of the Grand Trunk will not take it amiss if you should leave now. "'I think we can spare you a couple of hours, eh?' "'Oh, certainly,' said Moist, "'if it will make you feel any better.' "'Indeed it will,' said Gilt gravely. "'It will be best, Mr Lipvig, "'if you were a long way away from here.' Moist heard the tone because he was expecting it. Gilt was being reasonable and statesmanlike, but his eye was a dark metal ball and there was the harmonic of murder in his voice. And then Gilt said, "'Is Mr Grote well, Mr Lipvig? "'I was sorry to hear of the attack.' "'Attack, Mr. Gilt. He was hit by falling timber,' said Moist. "'And that question entitles you to no mercy at all, no matter what.' "'Bah! Then I was misinformed,' said Gilt. "'I shall know not to listen to rumours in future.' "'I shall pass on your good wishes to Mr. Grote,' said Moist. Gilt raised his hat. "'Good-bye, Mr. Lipvig. I wish you the best of luck in your gallant attempt. "'There are some dangerous people on the road.' Moist raised his own hat and said, "'I intend to leave them behind very soon, Mr Gilt.' "'There,' he thought, "'we've said it all, "'and the nice lady from the newspaper thinks we're good chums, "'or at least just business rivals being stiffly polite to each other. "'Let's spoil the mood.'" End of CD 10